Hi there! Welcome to The Manuscript. I'm Juliana Meyer. And I'm Breno Barreto. And in this podcast, we delve into the intersection of writing and the development of technology products. Every couple of weeks, we talk to people making a difference in technical writing, art and design, UX writing, content strategy, and anywhere else there's someone thinking about content in digital products and the tech industry. If you want to keep up with our latest news and insights, pitch in on themes for us to talk about, and also get some behind the scenes, follow us on Twitter. The link is in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to The Manuscript wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll know whenever we publish a fresh new episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. We have some exciting news to share. So up until now, Breno and I were responsible for all the steps in making this podcast, from dreaming about themes to editing the recorded episodes, which, let me tell you, is quite the challenge. But now we're no longer alone. Drumroll, please. <laughs> the manuscript has teamed up with Pupila, the junior enterprise from the audiovisual school at Universidade de Brasília, or University of Brasília. And they will be editing our show from now on. Not sure if that's a thing where you're from, but here in Brazil, university students are really engaged in junior enterprises. And according to juniorenterprises.org, they are, quote, nonprofit companies run entirely by university students. They provide services in their fields of study to other companies, entrepreneurs, and society as a whole, end quote. Each course usually has their own junior enterprise, where students apply what they learn in their classes to real clients from the real market. And now we're one of them. Oh my God, this feels so professional. <laughs> we're excited about this partnership so we can give back and strengthen this student community that was so important to our careers. Okay, end of the news. Let's jump to our episode. This one is more tech-related, where we'll cover tech writing and documentation platforms and tools. We'll interview Bruno Amui, tech writing lead at Vtex, talking about Bruno's surprising career path, where he jumped from building hardware, robots, and even satellites to leading a tech writing team at Vtex. And, spoiler alert, this is another episode where the chat was so inspiring that we didn't want to leave anything out. So our next episode will feature the rest of our interview, where we'll cover what we like to call how Bruno performs his tech sorcery, since he can literally fix any problem or bug that we face. He's going to talk about what he does to solve those issues and the mindset that he brings when dealing with new problems. We'll also talk about leading a team of tech writers on our next episode. So stay tuned and listen to both parts to get the full experience. And now, back to our episode. Hey, Bruno. Hey, Ju. Hey, Bruno. Hi, Bruno. It's really, really a pleasure to talk to you. You're certainly one of the people that were an inspiration for me in my career, I'm sure for Ju too. So really, really excited for this episode. All right. So... First of all, Bruno, can you please introduce yourself and share with our listeners a little bit about your path? Okay, so good evening, everyone. I'm Bruno. I'm a 
as you have said, I'm a tech writing manager of Vitex, but I'm like my career has like a, a, a winding path. It's not like a, a linear progression to tech writing. Bruno was the typical geeky kid who wanted to know how the world worked and was into comic books and fantasy novels. I have, have always been a huge nerd, like the knowing the, the verses for uh, poems in Lord of the Rings and <laughs> trying to disassemble electronic things in my house. My focus was always on uh, trying to learn how things work. So I was, all, I, I was the, the kid that was always what, asking why and how things work to my parents uh, uh, to they couldn't answer anymore. So then I started to go to the internet and trying to discover stuff by myself as a kid. It, it was like an adventure because it was the beginning as the, at, of the internet in Brazil. We uh, were still using like uh, telf, uh, like telephone internet connections that were really slow. And I, I was discovering how could I emulate like Game Boy games in my old computer so I could play the, the video games in them. And the... So, so for, for my whole life, I thought that I would be like a scientist. That was the, the thing that I wanted to be. So it, it was like not like really defined for what I wanted to be. So scientist was the thing that I would answer to anyone who would ask. And as I would, was getting older, I thought that I wanted to, make, to, to be a computer scientist. And in the like the the... Last year, before I, I, I went to college, I decided that I wanted to be an electronics engineer because I wanted to not, not only know how to program computers, but to how to build a computer from scratch. So I went to Universidade de Brasília uh, and I studied uh, ele electrical and electronic engineering. And during my, my graduation, I had the opportunity to work on lots of projects, lots of different projects. So in, in Universidade de Brasília, we have lots of extracurricular projects that you can participate and also lots of uh, research labs that you can uh, enter and, and work on. Soon into university. He was interested in robotics, so he started working at the university's lab, building robots that could do all sorts of things. I would build, like, help building the robots for people that were uh, making, uh, publishing papers on those robots. So I had the opportunity to work on robots that walk and like dogs and robots that fly and robots that swim in the lake and that was a a, a great adventure because i, I it, it gave me like a, a better comprehension on the steps that you have to follow if you want to develop a, a hardware and also the the specific kind of software that you have to make make to go inside of them. So, so I entered in this research lab in, in, in these extracurricular projects in the, in the start of, my, of the university. And as I progressed through the through university, I w was feeling that going to classes was not the, the thing that would, be the, that would give me the best value, which was, was naive and young of me, but that was <laughs> how I taught back then. And 
I was frustrated on the limitations of what I could do with the lab, the, the, where I worked on and what kind of equipment I had access to. So he decided to jump right into the startup world, do his own thing. As that, I, I was invited by my uh, colleague, George, when I, which worked with us also, to, to work on a startup. Uh, it was an education startup. We, we, developed, we developed a platform for people to teach uh, and learn robotics, for, like educational robotics. Unfortunately, not all startups thrive, and their startup didn't quite work out at the end. So he changed directions again. Out of the blue, he got a call from one of his teachers and was invited to work at the Brazilian Space Agency, our version of NASA, which is quite cool, to be honest. They developed uh, satellite projects. Like, differently from, from other uh, space agencies, they do not develop them by themselves. They fund universities and, and other type of, types of institutions so they can develop the satellites or the space projects for them. And I was contacted by a, a teacher from Universidade de Brasília that needed someone to develop hardware for that satellite. And it, I accepted because it was a dream of mine to work on anything that would go to space. Who would say? To that especially with your your background of building computers and toys from scratch since a kid <laughs> it was called a Ser serpents project it was a, a nano satellite which uh, it's a category of satellites that are really small for 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 satellites they had like 30 uh, by 10 centimeters what it was like a, a small shoe box and it was the main objective of the satellite was to uh, develop the the, the know-how inside Brazil on how to build satellites. The, this is something that is one of the main objectives of the the Brazilian Space Agency is to create like the the human resources necessary for the development of uh, Brazilian solutions, Brazilian space solutions. So. I worked on that project and we spent two years developing that satellite from scratch. Uh, we had to go through a testing phase that was different from anything that I had ever worked with, with like having to build a structure or like a, something from scratch, but with like engineers taking pictures of every screw you, you tap or ev everything that you do. And you have to keep a log of the times when you do everything and everything has to be auditable. You have to be able to test everything. It's, it's, it's really different from what I was uh, used to do, which was more like a, a cowboy kind of development with no, no structure. <laughs> the project was to deploy a satellite in low Earth orbit, which is the, about the same height as the International Space Station. And usually uh, stuff there's flying at that altitude, it will fall down to Earth in about nine months. It, it, it depends on the aerodynamics of the object, but that's usually the, the time that it takes you to get down. So my, uh, we had to choose the way to launch the satellite, and we chose to send it through the International Space Station. So it traveled 
via rocket to the International Space Station and the astronaut handled it and put it in a robot arm that launched it to space. And it was circulating and going around the, the Earth every 90 minutes for nine months. And then it fell down to Earth. I, I, I like to think that it became a, a shooting star and someone made wishes to it. But I can't know. I don't know where it entered. <laughs> After the project ended, Bruno got a bit disillusioned about working for the government and decided to change directions again bringing this maker, hands-on culture that was such a big part of his life to other people. So he founded Brasilia's first makerspace, so everyone could experiment building things. Me and, my, and some friends, we started up FabLab, which is a, a, a creative space where people usually have access to machines and tools that they don't have uh, access at, at home. Uh, in that context, they were like, 3D printers and um, metal curlers and wood cutters and all sorts of tools like that. And for five years, I I managed that space. So I helped to create the machines that we were using. I helped to maintain the machines that we were using. I gave courses to people on how to use the machines that I had created which was like a strange experience. I gave courses and all sorts of things uh, every week for five years and helped people to do, develop all sorts of different products. And uh, sometimes they were not products. They would be like costumes or uh, furniture or all sorts of stuff. And we got to have, have like a huge space with like uh, it had 400 square meters of space and it was also an art gallery where uh, some partners of us of ours would expose lots of things it, it was a huge project and we had like too much we, 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 we our monthly cost was too high so we were good developers we were good product uh, designers but we were not good managers we decided to close the company and because the, the costs were really high and we managed to do it without uh, leaving any debt behind so it it worked as, as as it should i was really sad because having access to all those tools were, were like a dream for me but i was asked to give classes to like um, a, a company that uh, has lots of schools through, throughout Brazil. And I was to go to the schools in, in different cities in Brazil and talk to the teachers about how could they uh, incorporate or uh, integrate better uh, uh, maker, maker education, which is uh, how teaching using tools and making stuff and making projects, hardware projects. And after traveling all over Brazil to teach teachers on how to implement this maker culture, he was invited by George, whom you've already met on episodes 11 and 12, to be a part of our tech writing team at Vitex. I was really happy because I was feeling that I wanted to work in, a, in an environment that would... Uh, help me and not hinder me so and that that's what i found at vtex and i found at first i did not see me as as 
a tech writer, but George helped me to see that the, the way that I used to learn stuff and to teach people how to use the stuff that I have learned how to use uh, would be really useful to the team. And I, I entered the team to be a tech writer, to write about development situations and development tasks in, at the techs. And I migrated to the platforms and tooling uh, area inside the team because some uh, it, it was needed and I had the knowledge. I had developed uh, platforms before, and so I, I knew how to do it. And so that's how I arrived here. So cool. So I don't know. You you kind of I don't know. You had the the coolest and uh, career ever, and and a very long career for some someone of your age. I think it uh, it's pretty safe to say that uh, you're the only tech writer in the world who has ever launched something to space. <laughs> so yeah, that's absolutely amazing. You're this guy who who knows how to build everything from satellites to furniture to to robots to ukuleles. And, and finally, you landed in, in tech writing, right? Which uh, in Brazil is something that is just right now beginning to mature, as you, as you know so well. So how, how does it feel? What are some of, of the skills that you picked up from, from your past experience and that you feel that are useful for you and for the team today? And, and what did you have to learn? I mean, how, how was it to, to, to land in this Different, I don't know if that different. You, you might help us understand if, how, how different it is. But uh, how how was it to land in this in, in the tech writing scenario? It's it's, it's really different. Uh, like I was not used to work in a like a structured space as as a, as the tech is as a company. I was more like a freelance or work for the for the government in, in specific projects kind of guy. So that was different, but I think Vtex gave me a good uh, a good space to to develop that kind of uh, knowledge. But I, I don't know if I can call it a skill, but like the the thing that I, I I think helps me a lot when working with tech writing is that I have so many times been faced with different things that I had to learn how to do that I'm usually. I don't have a, a barrier that I feel some people have when I'm facing something that's really hard. So make better association between different uh, different themes and different topics. So it's usually when someone is, uh, uh, is explaining a new feature or when I'm uh, reading code to trying to understand something that's new that's been developed at Vitex or, or how something works. Uh, I usually can uh, make associations with things that I have learned before. So having this diverse background helps me a lot. Perfect. What I think is really cool about your career and your background is that you really embody what tech writers usually are, at least in our Brazilian reality. So it's not necessarily someone who was trained to be a tech writer, but rather someone who has a background in something else that happened to be working with tech writer currently, 
but you bring this this attitude this mindset of continuous learning and not being shaken by what you don't know which is really inspiring and really amazing for for us on the team to get uh in contact with cool i'm sure we're going to talk more about your career in the the other questions because it's really interesting i love talking about that with you <laughs> but to dive deep about platforms and tooling so just a quick recap for our listeners who might not be so familiar with tech writing so usually depending on a product's niche or complexity tech writers can document user documentation or developer documentation and developer docs may include api references or integration guides or migration guides, apps, CLIs, etc., etc. It's a more tech-heavy kind of content. So today, you are in charge of our developer portal, which hosts our developer documentation, and also all of our platforms and tools that our documentation team uses to make those docs uh, be available for the public. So let's start from the beginning. Can you talk a little bit more about what does that mean, platforms and tooling for a doc team? What is your day-to-day -day like? Okay, so platforms and tooling. I see platforms, uh, specifically documentation platforms, as all the group of tools that we might, ending, uh, might use to make the documents public. So the, the platform can start from the moment where you can be the tools that you use from the moment where you start to write your document. They are the, the tools that you use to create your document. It, they, as I see it, they make part of the, the platform. And then you have some place that you have to store your documents and they have to be stored in a way that uh, it's easily accessible. And then you have to have some way to you to for you to present these documents to to the public, and which is usually a website, but it may be other kind of uh, platforms or, or other kind of tools that you might use, and and you also might have something for people to search your documents and to propose new um, to give you feedback on those documents. So all the, the tools that you might use in that uh, in that workflow, uh, it's what I call a platform. So right now at Vitex, we have two main documentation platforms. We have a help center and a developer portal. And I'm the person that's responsible for maintaining those. So if any bugs are, are found and any new features are to be developed, I'm the one that's supposed to do it, or at least organize the tasks so someone will do it. And in specifically about the developer portal, in that context, I'm also responsible for the development of the content organization inside the portal. So how do we separate the different kinds of contents that we have, we have there and how we expose them in a way the users can find what they need uh, easily. So what's my day-to-day -day like? So internally in our team, we have lots of processes. Uh, we have feedback processes, we have reviewing processes. So most of my day-to-day, -day, I had to go to that the tasks that are generated by that processes. And so part of my day-to-day -day is to answer to those feedbacks. 
but I we also have internally uh, a reviewing process. So every time a, a new document arrives in a specific stage, our automations will create a task for me to review this document, and that's something I have to do daily. And the rest of the time, I'm trying to develop new features, new features for our platforms and new tools for us to use. Our guiding team of designers and engineers that we have that, that help help us in the development. All right. So from what you're saying, I understand that there's a management side to your job where you manage people and also processes and projects. And there's also a more tech-related aspect where you are in charge of our platforms themselves. So making sure that they are bug-free and always evolving with new features, etc. That's it. There are lots of other kinds of tasks. They're more like rare. I wouldn't say they're in my day-to-day, but especially evolving our processes is something that we do constantly. Like every month we get together in the leadership of our team and we get to talk about how can we improve our processes. Hiring is something that I have to spend some time with because we are planning to expand our team a lot and that hiring is something that's really hard to do. And so that's it. I would say that I have like a a great part of my day. It's spent managing people and making our processes better. And a great part of my night I spend developing new features for our platforms. Cool. Uh, and something I was wondering while you were, you were speaking, Bruno, is that if I remember correctly, when you joined Vitex, you didn't have a developer portal yet, right? So you were kind of leading this, uh, the creation of this new platform and the whole tooling. So you were in a very good position, I think, to assess the importance of actually having a platform. And I think there are many tech writing teams or tech writers that don't even understand uh, what is the benefit of having a platform or, or at least a, a platform approach. Because, yeah, you just need to write and publish it. Just use a static site generator and it's done, right? And we know that a platform approach solves a lot of problems. So I'd like you to talk a little about these problems, the the roadblocks that a platform removes and and how it facilitates the tech writing job. I think it, as always, it really greatly depends on what you want to achieve. Like... It, it will be different if your if your documentation is embedded in the product then it, it would be in if you have like a, a separated place for people to learn about your product and also it will be different if you have like internal documentation that's aimed at the developers or the our internal team to learn more about the product it will be different from if you have like an external platform that has to be easily accessible throughout the world and so after you decide what you want to do and like if you already know what you want to do then you can choose a platform or to not use a platform or to develop a platform or to use a readily made one but at vtex we have two right now as i said two different platforms what the help center it is developed using our vtex uh, technologies so the, the same kind of technologies we use to to develop stores for, for our clients we use to develop our help center and we also have the developer portal the developer portal is a, a platform as a service that we pay for and so the solving of bugs and the development and the, and 
every new feature that we want on that platform, it, it has to be developed by the team that maintains the, that solution. So I think that you will always have end up using a platform in, in any sort of way, even if you're just making Google Docs and sharing links to that Google Docs, then Google, Google Docs is your platform because there will always be the tool where you make your documentation, store it and use it to share to, to other people. But surely the, the, your choice of platform can facilitate or create roadblocks roadblocks so i think the kind of roadblocks that are created are really different when you're using a external like a, a platform as a service or something that's open source with it or was not developed by your team or some something that's internal so in, in the platform as a service case we usually the roadblocks are created by the design or engineering decisions of the the team that created the project uh, it's usually, in our case, a, a team that has great experience, experience documenting and stuff and creating documentation portals. So they know what they're doing, but it's not always that we are capable to agree, we're able to agree. So it, it's not easy to get stuff done the way that we wanted to. So that's the kind of hot roadblocks that we might find. So sometimes a something that's really critical to us, a bug that's annoying our, our users is not annoying the role, the whole user base of the platform so it's not a, a priority and stuff like that can be a roadblock for us but also they it can uh, facilitate because they have a team of several engineers and several designers thinking how to improve the platform and that's something that we do not have internally so it's that's something good to have and when you do create like a platform by yourself, like an internally developed platform as the help center is, then the roadblocks are usually usually related to the development. So it's uh, developing hardware, uh, developing software is hard. You have lots of things to take, uh, to pay attention to. And especially when you are a, a software company that has to be seen as a company that develops good software. So we cannot make like a, a shooting portal that will not work well. That's part of our image. So that's something that it's a roadblock when you're developing something internally, but also you have full control of the, of the format. So when you create like, or just make decisions on a platform, you're deciding like, we will use Google Docs or we use rich text or we use or we will use um, Markdown for our documentation. And every single choice that you make is it's going to influence the way uh, people make their documentation. And if you have full control of that, then you, you, you can tailor it to your needs. So that's it. Like usually depends on what you, you are making, what you're trying to accomplish. Cool. It's really nice in Vtex where we work because we're dealing with both scenarios. So we have the experience of building our own uh, help center and also using an external software that is built by a company specialized in documentation portals. And I really loved how you balanced the pros and cons of each experience. That's really cool. I don't know. Uh, there's a, a word that for people who work with tooling and DevOps or DocOps or whatever we call it, which is a bit dreadful, which is migration, right? Migrating is always a bit 
Uh, as dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at Vitex, you've been through a few major platform, not only migrations but also updates. But we've kind of changed a lot, trying to find the, the best solutions, the best tools, the best platforms. So, could you go over these updates and migrations and tell us a little bit about the specific challenges that we faced, that you faced in the process? Yes, I can, usually can. It's, it's really hard to do migrations. You usually have to deal with lots of the specifics of your, of your documents or for your, of your data. But in, at Vitex, we had some big migrations that we had to make. So at first, as you said, we had to create our developer portal. And we didn't have a, a specific portal directed to our developer users. We had like pages inside of our help center that were direct to, to that public, but it was not organized in a way that was easy to find that content. And also the way that we documented our APIs wasn't really scalable. Like we were getting directly the data that our, the developers were using to test the APIs and with some very few document uh, changes in them then we would just put them online. The important thing about migrations that I learned is that if you want your if you want your migrations to be easy, then you have to choose good formats for your documents and for your data. So when we choose to use uh, Markdown as the code or the way that the language that we use to, to make documents, then it's easy to migrate those documents to other platforms that are already use uh, Markdown. And so we, we made something that was similar for our developer docs and for our API documentations, we decided to use Open API, which is a, a language that you use to describe REST APIs. And that opened up a, a lot of possibilities for us. We could use some developer portal tools to create the, the pages for those documentations direct from that representation, from that open API files. And we also could have a more, a better visibility of what was documented and what was not documented because we have tools that can go through the open API and give answers to us on what is documented and what is not. Basically, the, when we chose to use open API, we were able to enter like a, a community of people that are aimed at documenting uh, REST APIs and that have spent a lot of time trying to come up with the best solution for that. So I think when you plan your documentation portal and all your documentation workflow, choosing the right formats for you to store those documents is one of the, the most important things if you want to have easier migrations, if you want to be able to evolve your platform easily. So one, the first big migration we had to do was to migrate documents from Help Center to your or new uh, developer portal and also migrate the way we represent our REST APIs from what we were using before to open API. And that was hard <laughs> because it's a huge amount of documentation and it's not something that you can always do automatically. We, so we have to distribute the work throughout our tech writers and <laughs> they had a lot, a, a lot of work to do documenting all those endpoints. 
great memories were formed at that time. <laughs> I remember that <laughs> you did your best to, to make most of the process automatic. So we didn't have that much of a workload increase. But as usual, we always have to double check that every information that was migrated is correct. And it was a really cool team effort. Like we got together and started splitting tasks amongst our team members. And we've learned a lot on the process, at least. Yes, I really enjoyed it. it was, I think it was a, like a, also a bonding experience to our team, having all that work together. Yeah, totally. But that was the first big migration that we made. The second one was like, even though we did not have a specific developer portal, we did have an initiative that was created by a development team that maintains one of our projects. And it was a, a portal that was specific for documenting features of that project. So it was a really long process, especially at first, we did not have a great visibility of all everything that that portal did, and what it, it did a lot of things, and all of those features had to be, we had to take them into consideration. Decide if we want to migrate those features to the new portal, or if we were going to discontinue those features, and how it would we communicate the change to our to our users. So, that was also hard and it took more time than, than it took to, to migrate all our uh, REST API documentations because politics involved with the other teams, there were lots of new features that were being created in that portal that was going to be discontinued that then we had to decide what was going to be done with them. And we finished the, the migration last month and it's something that's not really visible to her. Like, it's not that it's not visible. It's like we did not an announce it because we sneakily created redirects. Like, if people wanted to access the old portal, they would just arrive at the right page in the new portal for the right documentation. And so this migration was... Great trick. Write that down, listeners. Yes. So it was not like a, something, an event that we made an, a huge announcement of, but it was something that I was really proud. All right. Uh, so to wrap this section, I'm curious. So if maybe our listeners are facing the same challenge of having the chance to build a documentation portal from scratch, uh, what should they have in mind? What would you recommend? What's your advice? So, as I said before, you have to have a, a good understanding of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And you have to be humble to know that modern solutions have lots and lots of features that are really hard to implement, especially if you have want to have good search engine optimization and localization features. And if you want to have like a glossary or a, if you want to be able to put snippets in your documents, all of that uh, has to be developed if you want to start from scratch. So what I would recommend is to find solutions that have good communities behind them. So if you're, if you're going to choose like a solution that's from the market or open source solution, 
then choosing one that has like a, a great community forum and lots of people are active and answering questions where you have lots of plugins so you can integrate with different solutions and different platforms that is what i think is is, is the best choice so because then you're not like locked in a solution that that you have to make a big migration to to get out of That was the end of our episode. We'll hear more from Bruno in the next couple of weeks when we publish part two of our interview. Or if you're listening to this in the future and the episode was already published, well, just go ahead and skip to part two as well. And so officially now, I'm super stoked to announce that this episode was edited by Pupila, Junior Enterprise from UNB. If you like good stories, you'll like Pupila. Thanks to Lucas Costa and André Josias, members of Pupila, aka the heroes behind the curtains who edited what you just heard. But hold on a sec, we still need your help. Although we're jumping to that stage where we hire people to edit the show, can't believe that we got here, honestly. <laughs> we're still doing this as a voluntary project from our passion about these topics. And so far, we haven't featured any ads, so we count on you to spread the word about our show share it with friends and colleagues, it really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.